All right, you are listening to Windsor's Inside Pulse for the latest news, views, and opinions here in our great region of Windsor, Essex County. For those listeners of our fans over on CGM 99.1 FM, as you know, with the studio there closed, we are broadcasting on our webcast with a new live audience and subscription base. Be sure to subscribe. Lastly, last week, we told you we'd be producing interviews for our special series of War 7 by-elections, and so far it's been going great. We started our interviews, we're going to be posting them up over the next uh, week and a half. Uh, Christine conducted a great interview with uh, Michelle, and it's now available on Facebook. I did one with Igor, I got Jiwan Gills lined up, uh, Greg LeMay with Dave Sundin. Just stay tuned, folks. Windsor's Inside Pulse is a place to be to connect and to get all your latest new views and opinions and uh, we're going to get started on another great show today. I'm Al Tashuba, co-hosting with Daniel Ablisser and Christine Brooks and David Sundin. All right. And our first topic for today's show, and we are recording right now on Tuesday, August 25th. It's about 8.45 p.m. And it is the big news with Aaron O'Toole. Now, full transparency, I'm the president of the Conservative Party Riding Association here at Windsor West. I was Aaron O'Toole's riding captain. I <laughs> full out endorsed him in January, hosted an event with him, and is con and I have continuously worked to try and get as many votes uh, for him in our Windsor-Essex region, along with a, late, uh, a lot of great volunteers. Uh, this is extremely exciting news. The Windsor Star article with Trevor Wilhelm. Uh, I think uh, quoted me perfectly. I was very pleased with it. Uh, I was able to express the importance of getting Aaron O'Toole elected for our region. And it's not just for the Conservative Party. Some comments were like, well, what difference does it make? The difference, it, the difference is this. It doesn't matter that uh, the number of votes for Conservative members in the region, as much as it matters that the person who eventually uh, will be creating policy and have the purse strings and monetary policies and budgets is aware of our Windsor-Essex issues. And I believe it is the duty of every political party in our region uh, to advocate to their leaders, and I know Dave does this as well uh, with the Liberal Party, is to make sure that whoever is leaders, whoever is representatives, knows our Windsor-Essex issues. You never know when they're gonna be empowered to make such decisions. They need to care for Windsor-Essex, love Windsor-Essex, know about our issues, and when the opportunity is right to make decisions to benefit our region, they are in a position to do so. And that is what's happening with Aaron O'Toole. I'll be straight with you. He actually knew our issues inside and out uh, back in 2017. Uh, very smart man, very well prepared. We, of course, uh, spoke uh, further about some of the issues. And if he becomes prime minister, I think we have somebody terrific uh, over at um, uh, Parliament uh, leading the country for our region. Manufacturing, trade, single sports betting, uh, auto sector, infrastructure, border, man, this guy's the man. So very, very excited about it. And I think all of Windsor-Essex should be as well. Dave, your thoughts? Yeah, so from a Liberal perspective, I was I was concerned that maybe Peter McKay would be winning this uh, leadership battle because I think that makes it difficult for uh, the Liberals to to uh, form government. Because I think they lose the, the Maritimes then. I'm not sure how Aaron O'Toole, uh, based on what I know about him now, I'm not sure how he's going to play out in the Maritimes and B.C., and Quebec, where I think the Conservatives need to make gains in order to uh, to win the next election. Um, so I can answer that might, question now, if you like. Sure. Yeah. Well, well, he's give you one more second, and you weigh yeah. in. And okay. then my, my understanding is he's 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 courted the, the social conservative vote this time, which the Liberals use, I think, to fairly good effect against Andrew Scheer last go around. 
mm. um, where last time he was he 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 uh, ran more as more of a moderate. Mm-hmm. But uh, you know your your thoughts on that, Al? All right. Well, Aaron's been called. Uh, first of all, he had a speech uh, today introducing himself. He is uh, for the rights of women uh, regarding uh, uh, abortions, and uh, he's for the rights of LGBTQ. He's been that way for a long time as a lawyer. He stands up for Canadian rights. Uh, so, in a lot of ways, uh, many of the social conservatives, you know, are calling him like uh, liberal light. Uh, so I don't think he's going to be labeled as a social conservative or, or the right wing or anything like that. I think he's a uniter anyways. He's pragmatic. Um, I will tell you this, his French is fluent and he won Quebec hands down over Peter McKay, even though Peter McKay is from Nova Scotia, who's closer to Quebec in a lot of, in a lot of areas, but it's, um, his French is fluent. Quebec loves him. And, you know, he has uh, a residency history in Quebec as well being with the military and, and being uh, someone who was able to interpret French uh, and English in the military. So I think Quebec is pretty good for Aaron O'Toole. That was evident in the amount of support. And as far as hoping Peter McKay, look, we hope Peter McKay is going to be an MP in Nova Scotia again, Central Nova or another riding nearby so he, we can help with the Atlantic provinces. Leslie Lewis just announced that she is going to be running uh, in a in a riding hasn't been announced which one and it's just going to be a unity party so in the end i think there'll be either a fall election or a spring election likely spring election uh give a chance for the throne speech parochments uh, christmas holidays set up the ridings i think we're looking probably at a, at a spring election yeah so so my thoughts al were that um as long as the conservatives come together after this and and play nice and work together um, that, that's the best chance that they'd have of, of defeating the Trudeau government next go around, mm-hmm. um, especially considering the current poll numbers with the liberals, even despite some of the controversy, still very much in the lead in the polls that have to come together. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas, you know, last go around with the Maxime Bourdieu, Andrew Scheer, um, the, the party didn't come together. It very much splintered, which was another part of, I think, the, the problems the Conservatives had. Mm-hmm. And, and the Liberals have had that in the past, too, right, with the infighting. The infighting can do as much damage um, as, as any opposition party can. So as long as there's no infighting over this, the results are accepted, the party unifies, that is the best shots that the Tories have of, of forming government in the not-too-distant future. Good analysis, I agree. Yeah, it's been uh, certainly been an exciting week in federal politics. The uh, congrats to Aaron O'Toole on uh, on winning the uh, conservative leadership. Uh, there was some local excitement about that. I saw in the Windsor Star them quoting some guy named Al Tashuba. I don't know who he is, but uh, he didn't seem to make any sense. So that was that. Um, but uh, and, more winners, yeah. Exactly. So, uh, so certainly exciting there. I think it's going to be interesting to see, you know, my view is he will present gains in the night. It was weird to watch the numbers come in because I mean, Peter McKay ended up winning, um, winning Ontario. But I mean, the thought is that and O'Toole ended up winning Quebec. And I think that the expectation is that O'Toole is going to do better in the 905 because that's where he's elected. And, you know, frankly, that's where elections are won and lost. But there's but that certainly may result in some sacrifices in the Maritimes. Um, so it's it's going to be interesting to watch. Peter um, McKay does have a lot of strong base in Toronto. He's been living there. So that that's helpful for him as well. 
Yeah, a- absolutely. I, I mean, I, I don't see Peter McKay running um, in Central Nova or, frankly, anywhere at this point. I think he took his shot. Um, I, I, wow. I think that the... Really? Uh, yeah. Um, uh, well, I, I, I'd say he took his shot, but I, I think maybe the commentary is that he uh, took his shot on an empty net and missed. So, uh, so. Uh, <laughs> well, that, that was his that was his comment about Andrew Shear. I think uh, when, when Shear lost the last election, I believe that he said that uh, Andrew Shear uh, took a shot on an empty net and missed or something to that extent. So I, I uh, recall I recall the commentary. I can tell you this. We, we love Peter McKay. Uh, he is one of the co-founders of the Conservative Party back being being the, uh, the leader of the PC party prior to the merger with the alliance with Stephen Harper. And, and I can tell you this, that a Peter, uh, the Conservative Party of Canada is stronger if Peter McKay is part of that. If he becomes an MP, he instantly will be a minister in the Aaron O'Toole next government. So it's we genuinely sing Kumbaya after the leadership races. I mean, that is the way it goes. I, Dave, David mentioned about the liberal infighting, or not liberal infighting, but potential infighting. I think of the example of the liberals with Paul Martin and Jean Christian. That lasted years, years, but still they had majorities along the way until finally it was a minority and then it fell. I, I think you will see unity like instantly and it'll be even more evident in the next seven days. Yeah, I, I think you'll see unity. I don't think that we're going to see a Mad Max Bernier go try to start his own new party. Like that's not going to happen with Peter McKay. No. I, I, I'm just not convinced that he's going to, that, that he's particularly interested in signing up to get back into politics if, if he's not in the leadership position. Maybe I'm, maybe I'm wrong. I mean, Alex, I hope you're wrong. I really you, hope you're wrong. You, you certainly know your conservative politics better, better, better than I do. But to me, he took, he had gotten out he took his shot to, you know, to me, it's kind of like when, uh, when Sandra Pupatello lost the leadership race to Kathleen Wynne back in the day, okay. she didn't, then, she didn't then jump in to go run for MPP again. And so I, I think that there's a similarity there. Peter McKay has already risen to the top or the second to the top in Canadian politics. He right. then got out. He took, he came back in to take his shot for leadership, which would, you know, potentially make him prime minister. He lost that. I don't see him jumping back in, um, you know, even though he would have his, you know, presumably pick of the litter of cabinet. Sure. I, I just, I, I just, I just see it. I, I see it difficult. To, I, I, I think it's difficult to see him jumping jumping back in at this point. So for the record, I am not predicting that he definitely will jump back in. All I'm saying is that we would love it if he jumps back in and the Conservative Party would be stronger with him in it as an MP. That's all I'm saying. Well, of course you're not predicting it because you're 100% in your predictions recently. And if you, if, you, if you jump in with the prediction there, I can tell you you're dropping down to 80%. <laughs> okay. Well, Christine. it's an interesting point. It's an interesting point you make, Daniel, because I hadn't thought about it, but really... It's true. Where do you go from there for if you are Peter McKay? I hope as well that he he remains uh, within the party because I think uh, the party is made stronger by him being part of it. Um, it was fantastic to see that uh, Aaron O'Toole won. He started his campaign here in Windsor. It tells you something, and I think the Windsor-Essex uh, group here, uh, our EDAs, Electoral District Associations, were really behind him uh, on account of that. He took note of us. He saw that we are a very uh, unique area in, in, in Canada, and he started his campaign here. 
He knew that I spoke French. And when I was to give an, uh, ask a question back in January, uh, I started in English. He says, no, no, en français. And I, mm -hmm. I gave it in French. He answered in French. Uh, he is very, very um, approachable. He's very attentive. He listens, but he's also a person of action. I think we have a winning, uh, a winning leader. Certainly to unify the party, which has been part of his platform from day one, uh, to show himself as a pragmatic leader and also as a, but a true blue. In fact, he ran on that as a, in, in his campaign. Another thing that I saw in the Trevor Willem article is what Lydia Milgen, a professor at the University of Windsor uh, in political science uh, said. And uh, she, she was impressed with how he distinguishes himself from his predecessor, Andrew Scheer, because he's not afraid to stay what uh, a conservative stands for. And not only that, but towards the end of the article, uh, he, uh, she says again, that um, uh, in fact, it will be easy for Canadians to know what they're voting for. If you are voting for Trudeau, it will be very distinct from what you're voting for with, uh, with uh, Aaron O'Toole. In other words, he stands for something that is going to be well articulated. And I think personally that it will be the difference in the next election, whenever that is, probably in, in the spring. So, Christine, I'm going to make some breaking news. You mentioned back in January we hosted an event for him. He actually came to Windsor, pretty well launched his campaign here on his birthday. And yes. I uh, outreached to Dan Muse, uh, one of his top organizers, and said, we got to have Aaron back in Windsor soon. He's like, yeah, I promise. So expect that to come in the mix. So when Aaron O'Toole wow. comes to Windsor, we'll be announcing it here at Windsor's Inside Pulse Wonderful. as well. Yes. Well, that's that's good to hear, Al. That you know, if if Aaron O'Toole ever becomes prime minister, and and uh, although I'm not rooting for him, whatever happens, it's nice to know that there's going to be someone here who has uh, hopefully the prime the conservative prime minister's ear, if and when the time comes for a change in government. You'll have to get him on the show, Al. Oh, uh, you know what? We yeah, sure. Yeah, well, we we could probably do that. <laughs> okay, we'll see That'd how it goes. be fantastic. I have another thing to, to talk about, if that's okay, and it has to do with how the Conservatives choose their leader, because I, I discovered this only recently, and I thought it was fantastic. It also points out the fact that um, uh, Aaron O'Toole is very much, uh, has a very broad base. The way we choose our, our, our leader is through the EDAs. Each EDA, Electoral District Association, has 100 points and 100 points according to whatever number of people. So some people say, well, each vote isn't equal, but in fact, it's each EDA that is equal. And so it really shows that he has a very broad base and already the basis to be a unifying power in our, in our not only in our, um, uh, in our conservative party, but uh, for the country as well. And I, I would just want to add one point of clarification. Uh, during the leadership race, the Electoral District Association Board of Directors were not, uh, were, were not swaying any of the members. Uh, people were swayed by individuals, so it's not like you get the EDA's Board of Directors. It's still the individuals. Now, myself as president, I, I separated myself from that. In fact, that our Board of Directors, I should vote for whoever you like, but individually I, I assisted 
Aaron O'Toole's campaign. And, and I actually know of other people on different boards that had other candidates. And that's okay. That's democracy. But in the end, we all sing Kumbaya. The other thing I want to add is because Windsor uh, West and Windsor Tecumseh has uh, lower than average memberships for conservatives, like compared to Alberta with like, you know, five, 6,000 members, uh, we might have maybe 500, 600. The vote per person, because it's 100 points per riding, actually makes it that our ridings are uh, more powerful in a lot of ways. Our votes locally is more powerful because you get a certain amount of points. And that actually helped Doug Ford get elected. Now, Doug Ford, when it was between him and Christine Elliott, we pushed him over the top, and he's premier right now and leader of the PC party of Ontario because of what we did in Windsor-Essex and our low numbers and our leverageability for that. So uh, interesting background, interesting dynamic, how it works. It's still grassroots um, and, and it's very fair with regards to the way the, the point system works. So we've talked a lot about this. Uh, let's move on here. We definitely are gonna have more to say as more events go on. Dave, lead us into our next story. Well, tying into my comment about having someone who has the uh, that may, the potential future, future prime minister's ear, we re lead into a story about um, Brian Massey being upset that the prorogation of parliament, the proroguing of parliament by Prime Minister Trudeau has put the brakes on uh, the single sports betting bill, which um, our local NDP MP has been um, advocating for now for a number of years. Um, and uh, so, so he's upset. Apparently, uh, pro-working parliament does not kill the bill, it just delays it. So um, this can be brought back on. It potentially does kill other pieces of um, government business, such as the tabling of reports. So apparently uh, there's a report that, that uh, 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 MP Massey was working along, along with other um, members of parliament dealing with fraud. That bill, uh, that report, I should say, that report um, is dead in the water unless the the committee that created it votes unanimously to put it back on, and then that report can be received by Parliament. So proroguing is different than an election. An election apparently kills uh, bills, um, and, and they got to start from, from square one again, which happened with the previous um, iteration of the single sports betting bill. Uh, the the proroguing of Parliament simply delays it until after the throne speech. Um, so your thoughts on this, Al? Well, my thoughts is that uh, Brian Massey's stick handling of this over the last 10 years has not been very inclusive. I think he could have done a much better job uh, including more people in what he kind of kept as his baby. It's not an original idea. Uh, we've been talking about this for 20 years, so like back in the 90s when uh, casinos have opened so and, and Proline was available and started three, three sports. So uh, or two or three selections. So look, at, at the end of the day, every party that I know of locally representing uh, support single sports betting, Aaron O'Toole included, um, our riding association, everybody, candidates, they go on record saying it. So it's not a matter of resistance. It's a matter of procedure now. It needs three readings in the House. And as we know, last time I got stuck, even after passing three motions in the House, it needs royal assent. It needs to go through the Senate. So let's get on with it. I'm hoping if Aaron O'Toole gets elected, he can steamroll this through and let's just get it done. Because if Michigan's having single sports betting, we obviously should have it. It'll help all our Ontario, all of Canada's casinos. And it's just so archaic not to have it. So let, let's move this along. 
So, uh, so two pieces here. I, I guess the first thing is just the uh, the pro the other federal news of the week, which is the prorogation of of Parliament, and that's controversial for some people. They tie it to the prorogation by Harper a decade ago or so. I actually think this is quite different. This is a prorogation for a month. It basically allows a new throne speech, which I actually think is quite high on responsible government because that's actually going to create a direct confidence confidence vote. And so it's going to be very interesting to see where the Liberals go with this. I think that they need the support of the NDP for there not to be an election at this point. I actually see them going hard to the left with social programs because of that. That's not where I'd like to see them go, but I think that's where this is going to go. Um, I don't think I, I, it's too bad that the prorogation kills committees and things, but it's really a delay for a month. It's, it's quite normal that Parliament rises for three or four months in the summer anyway. So the fact that we're that that we're up for a month here is is really not a, a terribly big deal in terms of the uh, single sports betting. Yeah, I mean, we've been working on it for for ages. I do think that, you know, ultimately we should have it. But frankly, I think we've basically missed the boat on it anyway. I mean, the Detroit casinos now have it. So if you want to go do live betting, you can go to the Detroit casinos. And I, I think most people, the people who do bigger sports betting anyway, they're doing it online anyway. So, uh, so look, do I want that? Do I think it will help with some jobs in Windsor? Absolutely. But this is the type of thing that if it had come eight years ago, 10 years ago, there would have been a real economic spinoff here now there's just you know we're now just trying to keep up at this point yeah now it's just a, a political football unfortunately as opposed to i think you're right daniel as opposed to being anything concrete coming of it um it's it's just nice to have the win in in someone's column and if it comes down to you know the fact that this has been delayed now uh erect grabbing the football and saying i'll get it back on the agenda and i'll get it done and actually gets it done that's a feather in his cap. And likewise, if, if somehow it passes without um, a local Liberals support, if, if you know, uh, Brian gets it back on the agenda and gets it passed, then it's a big feather in his cap saying, see, despite the fact I'm not in government, I finally got it done. So well, he might um, grab the football, but he can't. He still can't bet on it. <laughs> <laughs> Daniel, the puns. I disagree a little bit with you about that, uh, that it, it isn't important to get it done right now, nonetheless. And the reason being, and it was uh, explained in the article by Taylor um, Campbell in the Windsor Star, is the fact, and this is, uh, this is Brian Massey's own um, perception of it as well, and that is that the, um, this issue is actually has, has uh, uh, health, um, has, has effects on economics and ethical effects. And the big thing here is that dollars are being siphoned out of Canada through organized crime and offshore betting. And so the fact that in fact we have, yes, uh, you know, Detroit has a, a casino and so on, but there are still other options out there, maybe cheaper, maybe more accessible, but they are, all of it is siphoning dollars out of our, our Canadian economy and our local economy uh, in particular. So I think it's important to get that done. Another question that comes to mind is really, was this prorogation necessary by the government that the federal government did? And uh, we have to ask, what kinds of uh, benefits do the governing parties have from adding one month uh, of, of this uh, recess, if you will, uh, uh, in, in the House of Commons? 
I, I don't know the answer. I'm just uh, questioning this because I think there must be a benefit, including a report on fraud being killed off, uh, which is a lot of work, but uh, mostly work by a standing committee on industry, science and technology. And he is going to try to retable it. That's Brian Massey is, but still you wonder what the benefits were. Maybe there are other benefits to having this one month. I don't believe COVID-19 was part of that deal really. But I think what it gets you is it gets you a throne speech. And, and, and if you want to say, let's hold the government to account, there's nothing better to hold the government to an account than a throne speech, which is a straight up-down vote. It's a straight up-down confidence motion. So, uh, so you, you know, I actually think that it's the responsible thing to do here is to reset, have a throne speech, and then, you know, the, uh, the three other parties have to decide, are we going to an election or are we not? Well, this has happened before. In 2005, the NDP decided to side, Jack Layton decided to side with the minority liberals at the time. They received $4.6 billion in the budget, and they added to social programs, and the, and the Liberal Party survived for another six, seven months. I see it virtually the exact same way. The Bloc Quebecois are going to vote against the throne speech. The Conservatives will do the right thing by listening, but in the end, I think for ethical reasons, they likely will say no, and then it'll come down to the NDP, and the NDP will have the decision of all of Canada. Do they support? And it'll basically be, like you said, they'll have to move less. They'll have to give the NDP more money, more leverage, which is part of the reason why they're more powerful than a minority government than, you know, either a conservative or liberal majority budget for situations like this where they can leverage uh, some of their platform. And it'll, it'll be up to Jagmeet Singh to decide. Yeah, it, right. What'd you say the cost was last time around? 4.5 billion? 4.6 billion. Well, inflation. it's going to be a lot more expensive this inflation. time around. Um, so, so uh, and I think this this could have been a dangerous uh, ploy, but the, the liberals to pro rogue and hit the reset and and um, go to a throne speech. But for the fact that I think the liberals know that the NDP have zero desire for an election right now, I think they're still in disarray from the last election cycle. Uh, financially, they're, they're least prepared of all the parties, including the Green Party, to hold an election. Um, the, the NDP is deep in debt, not ready to fight an election. Um, by any means, whereas I think the Tories have a full war chest, the Bloc Québécois sees the numbers looking really good in Quebec for them to uh, increase their, their vote count and their seat total, and the Green Party um, having enough to, uh, to run full-blown campaigns and the rights they're competitive in, at least. Oh. Can we think that there are back of, uh, in the back of uh, the scene, there are negotiations taking place already? <laughs> I'm confident there is. I think there is as well, for sure. All right, let's move on to our next topic. So the CBC has a, an article with Noor Hashem Fawaz, who has helped start a new task force, and they are hoping to raise awareness around issues related to diversity and inclusion. Uh, this is a, a community group that wants to see change uh, a little bit everywhere in the, in the community, not just at the workplace. And they are not uh, a governmentally uh, backed uh, association. They are uh, really a grassroots association. They were inspired by discussion regarding Black Lives Matter, which was also a movement in our own community. They want to 
uh, see that diversity is an actual value that that becomes uh, that people become aware of and embrace and that it has real uh, that we see the results uh, at one point uh, she talks, we've talked a lot, she says, uh, Hashem Faraz, that, uh, about uh, uh, seeing women and uh, women in politics, for example, uh, for example, on council, yet no, there is no targeted initiative that is trying to engage those demographics. She's also talking about the underrepresentation in politics of not just women, but people with disabilities, indigenous people and other uh, minorities. This is the same thing for workplace sectors. They have launched projects that will collect data. They hope to do this to collect data to inform some decision makers and have policy changes uh, happening locally. Uh, the, right now, the group is missing some people from some key demographics uh, to contribute to their work, including those with disabilities and Canadians who have immigrated here. So uh, my take on it is it's a, an interesting initiative. I think it is an important initiative. From what I've known of my uh, daughter's friends, for example, who are of, um, of uh, uh, say of color or of another uh, minority, a visible minority group, they have often said that they don't feel good in all situations in our society and that they don't feel that there is uh, the same opportunity for them as other groups in, in our society, uh, for example, white uh, people. Uh, uh, so I'm, I'm saying, I think I have to listen to people from those groups to know that in fact, they are feeling this, it must be addressed. And I'm glad that there is a grassroots movement to address it. I, I personally do, uh, don't like to have things uh, that are, you know, saying, oh, we need three people of this, uh, in this, in, in, on council. We need three people from this group here to be represented. I don't care for that. I think the awareness of it and a grassroots movement to make people aware will get us there in a much more authentic way. Yeah, so, cer so certainly a good, um, uh, a good initiative to, to be taking place as we we know we talked about many times in the show we're we're one of the most ethnically uh, racially diverse regions in the country and yet if you were to look at our city council you would think that we were a remote community in the far north that only had white people um so it's, <laughs> it's certainly a, yeah um well yeah the current the current iteration of council at least right and so um word seven uh, might have g1 gill i mean look at the people all who run right i mean come and, on and so uh, it'd be nice to see and, and I, I agree with you christine we i don't want to see quotas i don't want to see that we're going to reserve so many people for uh, so many places for for people of this ethnic background uh, i think that that's that's foolish and we get into some some really um, silly areas if we do that, but certainly we should be finding ways to encourage members of uh, leaders of various communities um, to seek office and to uh, be represented on local um, not-for-profit boards and, and, um, and, and to show that at all levels uh, we are a diverse community. I agree with Dave and Christine. I, I think awareness of inclusion is, is okay. I think it happens naturally anyways in Windsor, Essex. We're one of the most diverse and inclusive uh, regions in all of Canada. 
So uh, if anything, uh, Windsor-Essex can be the model to tout inclusion all over North America, to be straight with you. But if you're looking at the actual results, I mean, out of nine out of 10 members of uh, city council, just by a standard deviation, it's not going to be perfect all the way through. You might say, well, Joanne Geniak is the only woman. Okay, well, there was Caroline Postma, and you look at the women who do run. I mean, just let it naturally happen. You know, look at the the people of position on the back administration who are women. I, I actually don't want to be like counting everyone and counting, oh, do we have the exact ratios? And only based upon that small sample size, does it determine whether it's inclusion or not? Like as an occasional high school teacher, I know that there are 75% women. I don't see that as, oh, well, that's not fair to men. It just let things happen natural as long as there's not discrimination in the process and everyone has their fair chance to get those positions. That should be good enough. And, you know, awareness is one thing, but I don't ever agree with like forcing quotas. Yeah. So, I mean, first off, I'm not sure how grassroots this is. There's sort of different organizations funding this. Um, but but ultimately, I, I think that this is the best approach to having diversity on elected office and boards, which is to try to build from the ground up to get people more involved in politics, encourage them to run. And hopefully then you naturally have people become elected. I'm not, you know, I'm not one for identity politics. I think especially when you get into um, elected office, you know, when, when you're in a majoritarian setup where there's one position to be elected, if your color or your gender are the most important thing, and that's what you think is the most important, then by definition, the, you know, the group that has the majority gender or the majority race would be winning. So that's the problem with making that your primary concern. Now, I think that we need the best, the most qualified people. I think that we need more people to run. I think one of the things that you need is to run multiple times, because if you if you look at the current council, all but one of them had lost elections before they won. So the way that you get to elected office is you actually run a few times and lose. And that's really the, the, the path to victory is losing. So we need people to start out, you know, run a quiet campaign where they frankly have no idea what they're doing, get, get a handle on things and then run again and run a third time. And that's how you get elected. But it, it's building up those people where they will actually, um, where, where they will actually, you know, get into the game of running for elected office. I'd, I'd like to add something about um, about immigrants because that was one group that they are talking about. So new Canadians. And I was a new Canadian decades ago, but still a new Canadian. And I will say one thing, as for example, a political representative, you represent a community. And as a new Canadian, I was different. I had I didn't understand everything. First of all, I had to learn English. So that was one thing. I had to, and, 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 and thing, uh, other things of, of the sort. I had to learn the ways, the mores, the, the ways. So in other words, if I wasn't at, in my 20s or 30s, I wasn't presenting myself politically, supposing I had wanted to, I personally think I did not have the social capital necessary to represent. And this is interesting because some of it can be explained, I think, by a lack of social capital that one has to represent the community. 
And it takes, as you say, uh, Daniel, uh, probably presenting yourself a few times to better understand the community, its needs and its wants. Well, I got to tell you, from a Windsor-Essex perspective, I was kind of a little bit surprised in seeing this article. Uh, again, the awareness is something that I think we all believe in. Let's see how it's implemented. Let's see where it goes. Let's see what this group is all about. Uh, with regards to immigration, the ICGO is having a big barbecue this Friday with a big announcement. I'm going to be part of that as their communications director. And it's now called the Integrative Canadian Group Organization uh, to help integrate Canadians. And there's going to be some other big announcements and some big uh, dignitaries there. I can't really say it on the show, unfortunately, uh, but I will talk about it afterwards. But um, 3 p.m. at Bruce Park uh, this Friday. It's open to the public. All right, Come on, that Al, means... spill the beans. Nobody actually listens to us. Well, I, I will tell you this. I don't want to steal the thunder of uh, Kassan Saka, uh, who's the executive director, but it is dealing with expanding the services that's been just so dynamically put together by Kassan Saka, the co-founder and his board of directors. I'm happy to be a part of it. And there's going to be some familiar people that we know that's also going to be making some announcements. And uh, you do have to stay tuned for that one. And it likely will be in the Windsor Star and media on the weekend. But uh, stay tuned. All right. That being said, let's take a break here on Windsor's Inside Pulse. You're listening to a podcast uh, edition. Uh, we'll be back after this break. And we're back. You're listening to Windsor's Inside Pulse, second half here of our August 25th edition on our podcast, I'm Al Toshiba, co-hosting with Daniel Ablisser and Christine Brooks and David Sundin. Power Pack first half. Let's get to it on the second half. Dave. So a topic that's been in the news uh, quite a bit, or, or it's a, a related topic uh, in the news quite a bit, um, and uh, it's got to do with the uh, supervised injection sites for, um, for to, to supervise um, uh, drug users. And so we've been talking for a number of, unfortunately, uh, I think close to a couple of years now about the increased opioid deaths in the region. Um, and the news story uh, that this is based on, uh, Brian Cross article from August 22nd uh, in the Windsor Star talks about the fact that in 2007, um, there were 78 um, recorded trips to the hospital over overdoses. In 2016, there were 108. Uh, and then they jumped to 249 in 2019, and the, the rates for 2020 are even higher. So it's been a, a growing and ongoing concern, uh, obviously, for the, the region. And now the health unit is looking for supervised injection sites um, to, to assist with um, all of the problems associated with, uh, in, uh, with, with drug users. So, um, Al, your thoughts on this? I think uh, we had talked a little bit at break. It's going to be not in my backyard discussions all the way through. Uh, people see it as a need, people want it, but the location is going to be very, very important. It has to be very, very sensitive uh, to the, the location. Probably it's going to be in downtown, my guess is. Um, it's a service that if it can help people and uh, bring people more towards recovery and oversight with uh, uh, less, less crime, less uh, addiction overall, uh, it needs to be done. And uh, I, I'm, I trust the health officials to implement it. And I hope the city council and, and everybody involved can try and work out a very reasonable plan to, to do so. Yeah, I find this issue of the supervised injection site to be one of the more 
difficult ideological debates that goes on because on one hand there's certainly some evidence that it works that it helps that it keeps people alive on the other hand i, I can't get out of my head that it's uh two things one that you're sort of what you permit you promote and two you know it's got to go in somebody's backyard and i wouldn't want it in my backyard so how do you hoist it on somebody else so but i do think that you know we're, we're to the point where i think that we do have to go this route other people are doing it there seems to be you know, elements of success there. I don't trust all the studies, but I think that there is some some supportive science on it. You know, one of the things is I, I think we're going to be hearing about a location for the new mission in the next uh, in in the next six months or so. I think that um, you know, I I think that there's that industrial zone sort of along the McDougal Avenue area in the core. Um, I think that's probably where we're going to end up seeing the mission, yeah. and I I think that ultimately. You know, if we're going to do a supervised injection site, that may be somewhere in an industrial zone like that, close enough to the missions, so that, or far enough from the mission so that it's not right in their face for people who don't want to be using and want to get themselves clean, but also close enough so that people who are, you know, who are drug users, who are opioid users, um, that use the services of the mission can be close enough and safe enough to go to that site. So I, I think maybe that's the answer. There's not too many houses in that area. Um, and and I, I think that we do ultimately have to go down this this road, but it's going to be interesting to see, you know, it's, it's going to be a topic that I'm sure we'll be covering over the next six months. That's yes, a, actually a great idea of a place, uh, the place that you mentioned. You do want it outside of the constant visibility because uh, I mean addicts don't need to be reminded of, of this in the sense that oh I can get a quick fix but at the same time it's been a long time coming and we really need it. Uh, the last year I taught I lost four former students to overdoses. I had never lost a student to an overdose in my entire career. Um, uh, on top of that, this, this summer, we had several weekends where the newspaper told us uh, record numbers of uh, deaths due to overdoses. We need to be doing something. These are people. What are we doing that we can't help them? We, there are ways to help them. On top of that, any supervised injection site location is a way to embrace people and forge their pathways to recovery. You find their, give them literature, give them a, a sense that they are not alone in their addiction and that, that they can get help. This has been very, very difficult during the pandemic because as another article by Dave Battagello, this one in August 22nd in the Windsor Star says that uh, an individual here, Brian Hucker, who is an, a recovered alcoholic, has explained that, in fact, uh, addiction has gone up during the pandemic, uh, in, in especially uh, through isolation, and that, in fact, drinking uh, in isolation, uh, and he says himself, most of my addiction was created when I was alone, and so many people have felt alone. They have been disconnected from from fa other family members, uh, uh, from from work, from uh, co-workers, etc., and this has led to increased drinking or uh, other addictions. And uh, uh, again, uh, even seeking help has become more difficult because the help has gone online. So all of this, I think, uh, leads to uh, really wanting to help 
and hopefully getting a, a good site location. And in fact, that's what they're looking for right now. So um, I'm sure we're going to be talking more about the story in the in the weeks and months and maybe unfortunately even years to come as, as we continue to grapple with it. Um, but moving on from from that topic, um, a more um, I guess upbeat topic in, in a way is the the uh, city council debate about um, what to do with a civic square. So we've gone from talking about you know where to potentially locate a uh, a safe injection site to to where to set up uh, to, to how to uh, set up a civic square and so we have the the area where the old city hall sat and the area in front of it um, and and the city wants to um, uh, pay some monies and some fairly substantial monies to have a, a plan drawn up into uh, for a civic square to be designed for city council's review and approval and for public input and the price tag that was provided at council according to a Brian Cross article dated August 24, 2020, is that plan, uh, the, the actual plan um, could cost $550,000 to plan and design. So um, Daniel, you're a local um, city hall watcher, your thoughts. Yeah, so I mean, again, what you, what you said is important here. This is just the design work, basically. This is not a shovel in the ground. This is just the design work. Ultimately, the total plan that the city was looking at to do that plaza and then sort of redo some of the, uh, the riverfront to the east over all the way to Walkerville was like a $57 million plan. And they had put forth a request to the upper levels of government for funding for that. And that got rejected. So the, the province and the feds at this point in this round of funding aren't going to be kicking in any money. My view on this, look, I like the idea of redesigning that esplanade, that city hall esplanade. I like the idea of maybe a new skating rink, a water feature and all that. But I would have tapped the brakes on this until we get through the next budget. I, I might have deferred this until maybe the meeting after our next budget to see where we are. We kind of had this issue with the uh, with the beacon and the argument in favor of moving forward with the beacon was, well, we already spent 500,000 bucks on the design work. So now we got to spend the 7 million bucks on the beacon. This is one step earlier. This is that first planning step. And, and my view is, you know, I, I like the idea of doing this, but I think that maybe we hold off until we get through, you know, we get through the next budget because we also want to be getting that higher level of funding. And we missed this round. Now I think that ultimately you there's it's a bit of chicken and egg in that you need a shovel ready project in order to get some of that funding um but i i think that you know given what we have with covid and the budget uncertainties i might have held off on spending this 550 until we had a better sense of you know also what do we want and has any of our wants changed in terms of the design for this because of COVID? Do we want different things in this plaza? So I might have held off, the city's gonna move forward. It's not an awful thing because ultimately I think that at least, I think we all agree that, you know, redesigning this square is a nice is a nice thing. I'm just not sure that right now is the time to do it. It's interesting to see that our, our uh, the last fiscal hawks that seem to be sitting on uh, city council are, are uh, Councilor Francis and Councilor Geniac who are, are always the ones saying, well, we'll put the brakes on. Let's wait and think about this for a minute. I think they're they're echoing the same comments you you just uh, you just said, Daniel. So, uh, Christine, you wanted to weigh in on this? Yes, I agree entirely. I don't think it's the time for this. I agree. Uh, I actually at first looked at it completely wrong. I said five hundred fifty thousand to design the Civic, and then I realized it was the plan. And I thought, oh my gosh, really? I think if we look at the situation we're in right now there are a lot of jobs that have been lost 
most of those jobs are in the service sector and and in in other uh, restaurant business, service sector, uh, uh, retail, etc. I think we need to figure out how to get everyone working. And this is not necessarily, and I know $550,000 might not seem like a lot, but maybe it should be looking at a plan to how to get everyone working. And, uh, and, and that, that would be already something. All right. Well, our next City Hall news story that was in the news a bit this week is uh, there was an article prior to the last City Council meeting, Ward 2 Councillor, disappointed with student housing report. So Councillor Costante, 16 months ago or so, had asked a six-part council question basically on what can we do to solve some of the problems, particularly around the university dealing with student housing and student housing creeping into single-family housing. He was none too pleased with the report that came back. There were some articles about that in the paper in that basically the report sort of quickly said nothing we can do, nothing we can do, nothing we can do. Ultimately, at the last city council meeting, which was this past Monday, he had a three-part motion. One of one of those things was to petition the, uh, the provincial government to allow cities to place more requirements on student housing. Um, the other piece of that was um, to ask... Um, in terms of the interim control bylaw that's now been put in place for uh, rooming houses above five units to allow the plan that's going to be considered as part of that um, to include less than five units because that's really what the, the problem around the university is. You have single family homes where they stick eight people in there. And the third, and I think the thing that's going to be the most controversial, is um, he's asked for a report to come back by October on this idea of a residential rental license. And the residential rental license is something that's been divisive at council before. Last, last term, I think it lost by a five to four vote with a few people conflicted out. So this residential rental license, that's going to certainly be a hot issue for debate in October. Al, I have to go to you first on this because I know that you are a huge fan of the residential rental license. I'm a huge fan of enforcing laws that are currently on the books, building codes, uh, infractions of you know, shoving in seven bedrooms in a single family dwelling by changing the living room and dining room to also be bedrooms and making like a big boarding house and having overcapacity. That should not be done. And there's already laws in the books with the building code about not being able to do such a thing. What I don't want to see is I don't want to see a universal rent registry for every property in the entire city uh, because there's only a small few in one area of town specifically doing this. So it, you shouldn't uh, crush a walnut with a sledgehammer uh, and, and make good landlords and, and our economy that is famous now for investment property be punished because of uh, building code infractions with some landlords. So I hope we don't go over the top with that and we can be reasoned. One other thing is that with the university being uh, not providing classes, the enrollment and need for housing is down. So these things might kind of level out naturally anyways. Al, the challenge though with this concern that you've raised, which is, well, how do you stop people from renting out a dining room as a bedroom is right now the problem is there's no way to enforce that because you're not allowed to inspect those properties. And that's what the RRL allows for. I'm, I'm not, to be honest, I'm not a huge fan of the RRL. I just think that we all recognize that there's a problem here and the other solutions haven't been working. So, so that's the challenge with, uh, with, um, with, why you arguably need an RRL. Um, it's how can, you can't police it. But you can still change uh, enforcements 
of violations of current building codes without establishing a new tax grab uh, bureaucracy of a rent registry. And that's what the only solution that's being proposed and it doesn't need to be that. If this issue gets in front of city council and they're allowed to have delegates speak upon it, I'm sure excellent landlords uh, and property developers and, and uh, people who are involved in the rental business such as myself and Kevin Flood and many, many others will speak up and give ideas because at the end of the day, you know, we have a reputation for good investment in Windsor and you throw in an obstacle like land registry, it will change the property value by millions of dollars and you're just trying to stop a few things, not everything. So let's keep it in proportion. And I'll save my comments for the delegations. Well, Christine, well, we'll go to you, but I think certainly this is something we'll be talking about in October. So Christine, give us your preview thoughts on what we're gonna be talking about in October. Oh, oh no, I was, I, well, I just wanted to say that in the area uh, it, where uh, Fabio Costante uh, is, is a counselor, I mean, those houses have not been family homes for a very, very long time. I grew up in that area, and to be quite honest, probably already by the 80s, many of those houses were being slowly transformed into student housing. Now, what needs to be done is to have very strict a fire code uh, application that would already uh, eliminate maybe some of the very big issues and possibly uh, uh, some other ways of, of, of dealing with that problem. Christine, I, I agree with you that, you know, certainly in that what we'll call the student ghetto right around the university. It hasn't been family housing for a while, but what we're seeing, and I, and I know this area pretty intimately, is that it's creeping farther and farther out. So a number of months ago, there was plans to basically tear down a bunch of houses on California Avenue south of College Street. I mean, that is a significant creep away from the university, and that's really where the, uh, the challenge is becoming. So look, I agree, you know, places like Randolph Street, Naskin Street, right near the university. There's a lot of student housing there. That's pretty normal, but it's creeping farther and farther out. All righty. Well, we will move on to our next article um, very quickly. So because of COVID, the city has canceled the uh, open streets for this year. They're planning to do a second open streets next year. I was politically, I was a bit surprised by this, that this went on the consent agenda, which meant that there was really no debate on it. Um, people were content with what administration was telling them. Anyone surprised by that? Any, uh, any, any thoughts on that? Christine, uh, any thoughts? It doesn't surprise me, to be quite honest. I think all of the major things have, and I think really uh, it is very, very difficult to police uh, uh, the six uh, foot distancing that is being, that is, uh, you know, recommended. And gatherings like this just cause havoc, I think, at this point. So I really think that it is the wise thing to do. I think it is a wise thing to do. The, the city has, through the uh, the downtown market, reopened, uh, but that's a much smaller area to police and to try to enforce things. Right? It's a very controlled uh, strip of Polisher and Maiden Lane, um, so a much different concept than uh, the open streets, uh, especially the iteration we saw last year, which was basically across the entire city. Uh, you could go down Wyandotte, for example, and parts of Riverside Drive. I, I, it's a bit harder to police and, and to um, to ensure that, that social distancing is being maintained. Um, city market, downtown market's a, uh, a different story altogether. I trust the mayor, I trust city council. If the votes weren't there to pass it and they went on the consent agenda, so that's democracy. I don't necessarily uh, 
think that you know they they it didn't have they didn't have to climb. I think they could have pulled it off with people wearing masks and keeping distancing. But you know, if it just wasn't going to be worth it, and people for the most part said, "Let's move it last year," it is not the first thing that has been canceled in 2020. I mean, that's like one of hundreds of things. So looking forward to it next year. It is a great program. Well, it's not canceled. The the Detroit fireworks aren't canceled. They're going to have them from a hidden location uh, yes. um, so that people can't gather. So things are being canceled, but at least the Ford fireworks, um, even though um, a couple of months late, are going to happen. Um, I believe uh, it is going to happen. Uh, sorry, I thought I had a date here. On August 31st at 8 p.m. They'll be broadcast on local four um, I love but it. locations so that no one can gather and, and break the, the COVID rules. Daniel, your thoughts. What I don't understand here, and you know, I've I've had some comments about this, is like why why can't you just reproduce like the best of from the past twenty years? Why do we have to go blow off a bunch of fireworks in, in, in a in, in a secret location somewhere? I've heard some people say, well, you know, we probably either already spent the money and then they'll go bad by next year or whatever. I just find, you know, fireworks I, I love fireworks. They are, you know, they are admittedly some sort of unnecessary pollution but they're fun but if you're going to do it where nobody can actually see it and you're just going to put it on tv why not just like reproduce ones from the past 20 years that's what i don't understand i have an idea why it's because you don't want covid19 to defeat you and so we can say they did happen we still had them and they were we saw them but we didn't see them in the same way so it, we weren't completely defeated by this little virus that's how I see it. Yeah, we, if you don't have the fireworks, that means the virus wins. Good for you, Christine. We don't stand standing up to those virus people. Christine, you want to tell us real quick about one thing that is not being canceled, that is being uh, that, that's being revised here, that starts uh, this Friday. Yes, whiff, 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 whiff is coming Windsor's International Film Festival in a modified form, but in a brilliant form. We are going to go to the drive-in and uh, the beautiful, beautiful shows. It really reaches out to all segments of our community. The very young have some interesting uh, cartoony type films and uh, those who like, uh, I don't know, uh, 007, I think he's in there as well. There is a vast variety of things to go see. We are social distancing together at the riverfront for a new version, a COVID version of the Windsor, uh, Windsor International Film Festival. I'm so excited. And I thought it would be just, you know, a couple, a couple showings, but it's, it's over 10 days. It's incredible. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Whiff. 17 days, I think. I, I think that it starts this Friday and, and two Sundays from then. So uh, so be sure to get out. I'm going to see the uh, the uh, the Bond movies on Saturday night. I think that might already be sold out, but there's a whole bunch of other movies for people to see. So get out, support with. Anyway, um, thank you all for joining us on Windsor's Inside Pulse. We look forward to, as we uh, promised, bringing you a number of new Ward 7 interviews in the next week. Please remember to subscribe to the podcast and join us on Facebook at Windsor's Inside Pulse for show updates, where you will be the first to get our special interview episodes. Thank you for joining us. Have a great week, and we will see you next week for our normal show. Thanks for listening.